invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 44 to 52. The next Sabbath... Nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Father, that's, that's what we want. We want to respond like the disciples did here in verse 52. That we would be continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And again, Father, we know that we express that as our heart, but we need your help. We need your grace. We need your assistance to, to give us insight and understanding. Lord, even to apply this word. Lord, even if we're convinced that what your word says is true, we, we know for our lives are a testimony that we struggle to obey and it's sometimes even to believe. And so we ask that you would work in power. And especially if there's anyone here who, who does not truly trust you, has not submitted their life to you, that you would work in power to, to open their eyes, that they might taste and see that you are good, that you have hope in your word that is trustworthy, that's real, unlike so many of the other vain hopes that this world offers. Lord, that, that, they, that you would work in their heart to draw them to you, as we know that is your desire. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, began very purposefully by inviting everyone here to turn in your Bibles to Acts 13. And... and that request to turn your Bibles is not just a, a throwaway phrase. It's not just a, a colloquialism. It's very purposeful because my aim in every sermon is, is actually quite simple. It's simply to explain what a passage of Scripture is saying and then also uh, how it applies. The, the so what? Well, what? What's the significance of this passage to us? That's, that's all I'm seeking to try to do. And so I want to proclaim to you what God's Word is saying. I'm not up here just 
trying to be creative and simple and just kind of give you my thoughts on what's going on in the culture and politics. Like uh, the, the, the homilies I used to hear when I was growing up, uh, the, our priest would, would, I remember one sermon he preached on the, the, the Good Samaritan. And he said the whole point of the story was to be like the donkey. Because the donkey just took the man and brought him, and he never asked for thanks. <laughs> it's like, what? I mean, the point of, of preaching is not to be creative. It's, it's to proclaim what's there, what's obvious. And then, of course, to understand it in such a way that we would live according to it. Because, again, this isn't the word of man. This is the word of God. And if you think uh, that you're here to listen to my thoughts on a subject as if this was just some academic lecture, then you can just essentially take it or leave what I say. It doesn't really matter how you respond. You can just sit in judgment rather than letting the word sit in judgment upon you. But this is God's word. It's not the word of a man. And so let me be clear about the point of this text before us. It's that the Gentiles rejoice when they hear the word of God proclaimed. But in contrast, the Jews repudiate the word of God. And so, and so the so what of this text is, how do you respond to the word of God when you hear it? Do you rejoice in it? Or do you repudiate it because it doesn't line up with what you already think? Now the differences between these two responses, between the Jews and the Gentiles here, aren't so much ethnic as they are religious. And that's really critical that we recognize that. Because we're we're kind of hypersensitive to ethnicity right now in the world. But it's not really an ethnic conflict. It's a religious conflict. It's a worldview conflict. The conflict is between those who recognize that their salvation is available to anybody who trusts in Christ and for those who believe that the salvation is for the Jews only or those who embrace their law and seek to obey the law like they do. In other words, it's a conflict between those who believe that salvation is by grace alone or those who believe salvation is by works And that's what's at the root of this conflict between these two responses to the gospel. And, and we need to take warning here. Even as a church primarily made up of Gentiles. Because the Jews here were convinced that they were responding rightly. They were convinced that they were right. I mean, that's why they get so angry. They were convinced that they were right. They were convinced that they, the other people had the wrong interpretation of the word of God. But their response shows that they weren't right. In fact, the fruit of their lives reveals the true nature of their faith. In fact, it's a true thing for us. The way we respond really shows what we believe in. The way we live shows what we believe. And that is very clear here in these two different responses. And so just by way of introduction, uh, I have a a chart. I'm just going to walk through these these. Kind of what's rooted in these two different responses to the Word of God. And just show, and I have some verses up there that just kind of show you where this is seen in the text. First of all, the self righteous are characterized by jealousy. Whereas the apostles, the very reason they're in Antioch is because 
they are desirous to see these Gentiles find joy in Christ. Or the Jews, whoever. Whoever, they just want people to find joy in Christ. One is jealous, but the other rejoices. Now, the self-centered, they crave respect. They want admiration. That's why they're jealous. Just like Paul says of the legalistic Judaizers in the book of Galatians. And by the way, the Galatians were the people in these churches. Pisidia, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, that which are the next cities they'll go to. Paul writes to these people later on. He says, you're trusting these people who shut you out so that people might make much of them. Right? The reason they're shutting you out is so that you might be impressed with their godliness, with their righteousness. Right? The self-centered crave respect and admiration. This is how Jesus characterized the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They love that they, because they love to be seen as respectful, admired people. But by contrast, the Christ-centered, what are they hungering for? They want the word. They hunger for the word of God, not respect, but truth. The self-centered find pleasure in their discipline and their austerity. Right? They find pleasure in not being pleased. Like they have, a, they have a good day if they were able to resist any sort of pleasure. Like the Pharisee in the Pharisee and the tax collector. I fast twice. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He rebukes the Pharisees. He says, when you fast, don't, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. They make themselves miserable so that people would have pity upon them for being so righteous. And then they'd respect them too. They get pity and they get respect. But the Christ-centered find pleasure in others being pleased. I mean, this is amazing if you look at Paul's letters especially. About what, what, what he finds pleasure in, what brings him joy. He says in 2 Corinthians one twenty four, not that we lord it over your faith, we don't want to lord it over you, but we work with you for your joy. He says again in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 3, that his joy is their joy. He told the Philippians that the aim of his ministry to them was their progress and joy in the faith. That's what got Paul excited, is when he saw others delighting themselves in God. When he saw others rejoice. In the Thessalonians, I love this. First Thessalonians 2.19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus is coming? What, what's he so excited about? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's what infuses Paul with delight. It's not when he gets an award, when he gets a degree. It's when he sees others find delight in God. You are glory and joy. But the self-centered, they actually get bitter when they see other people enjoying themselves. <laughs> it reminds me of H.L. Uh, Mencken, I think it was Mencken, who, who defined, Puritanism, defined Puritanism as... The, the fear that somebody somewhere is having a good time. 
Now, he totally didn't understand the Puritans. He was wrong. But he got that definition because, because he knew people in his own day who loved the Puritans, and that's how they lived. Now, those people didn't understand the Puritans either. It's not the Puritans, but these were prudes who claimed to follow the Puritans, and they thought the Puritans were all about just being self-disciplined, austere, when in fact they delighted in the Word of God, and so they didn't need all this other stuff. But they weren't pleased with their discipline. They were, they were pleased with grace. And so it's worth us asking, do you find your joy in others' joy or primarily in your achievements? Like, what is it that just has made you smile and delight and say, that was a good day? Self-lovers slander with their tongues. Whereas the Christ lovers glorify the word. Self-lovers have no fear of God. But the Christ lovers, they're not afraid of men. That's why after they were persecuted in this text, they just go on to the next city. And it gets even worse there, as we'll see next week. The self-centered respond to difficulty with self-pity and anger. When things don't go their way. But here we see the Christ-centered men responding with joy, even in their suffering. In fact, that's how the, the chapter ends, right? Continually with joy. The self-lover's anger is rooted in a sense of entitlement. But Christ's lovers, however, are defined by a humble gratitude. Right? And this is what we saw in, in the parable of the prodigal son that we read earlier. Right? The, the prodigal son said... Father, I have sinned against you and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. How many of you have prayed like that recently? Especially after a prayer of confession. God, I am no longer worthy to be entitled to anything. Just treat me as your slave. I'll do whatever you ask. And what was the attitude of this man's brother? Look. These many years, many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What was his attitude? You owe me something, Dad. Because I have been good for years and years and years. And what have you given me? I think that's often how a lot of Christians act. And they, they, they begin to think that God is really one that just is looking for performance, looking for achievement, rather than just wanting his children to love him and to just take pleasure in what he gives. We'll see these things come out in the text before us. Pretty simple outline. And again, it's contrasting the Jews and the Gentiles. The, the, the Gentiles just express this great interest in the word in verse 44. But then the Jews are jealous because of their interest. Then you see the Gentiles rejoicing in verses 46 to 49. And because of that, the the Jews persecute the apostles. And the response, the disciples rejoice. This back and forth contrast. And that's that's meant to show us something. Just like Jesus said, contrasted the response of the older brother and the younger brother. There's really two ways that people respond to the word of God. Because there's really essentially two worldviews. A self-centered 
what's-in-it-for-me worldview and a God-centered, I-don't-deserve-anything, only God alone deserves glory and honor and praise, and I am a sinner. And sometimes, sometimes we can truly believe in Christ and yet slowly revert back into this self-centered, works-based religion that really has no basis in the gospel. In fact, that's why the book of Galatians was written, is to combat that idea within the churches of Galatia. Let's look, first of all, at the Gentiles' interest in the word. Verse 44 says, The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So right after Paul and Barnabas had finished preaching, for the next week, the word just spread that there was this amazing message, this good news that had been heard. And so by the next Sabbath, Luke says, nearly the whole city turned out. Now, there was probably mixed reasons. Some were just truly interested to find out, can it be true that Gentiles can be forgiven by the God of the Israelites? And some might have just been interested in the conflict. But the dominant reason, again, would have been the central message of Paul's sermon. Look at just a few verses earlier in verses 38 and 39. This was the central the central message Paul preached, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And notice the next verse. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. The law of Moses isn't going to save you. It's not going to bring forgiveness. But through faith in this man, anyone who believes can be saved. Now, that is great news for those without the law of Moses. But those who put their trust in how good they try for God, that's a big loss. And what's most significant is, again, that they hear this, everyone who can believe, and this draws a massive crowd. And it just shows that inherently, many of these Gentiles knew They knew inherently that they needed forgiveness, that they had sinned against a holy God. And now finally somebody is telling them something that's going to work. Something, there really is a way to be set free from their slavery to sin and from their hopelessness. They just needed somebody to tell them. This brings us to the Jews' reaction, their their jealousy. Verse 45. It says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. The Jews are filled with jealousy and anger by, by the Gentiles' interest. Now, their jealousy is not, they're not jealous of Paul and Barnabas because, wow, these guys are going to listen to Paul and Barnabas, but they never came to synagogue before. That's not their jealousy. They're jealous because the Gentiles are being offered forgiveness. And we know that because of what Paul says in Romans 11, 11, when he says salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make the Jews jealous. That's why salvation has come to the Gentiles. The Jews rejected their Messiah. Now, they can still embrace him. But they need to recognize that salvation has been offered to everyone, not just them. So what's the underlying hard assumption that provokes such jealousy in the Jews? Entitlement. 
They think they deserve all those promises that have been given to them by virtue of just being Abraham's descendants. It was the same mentality of the Pharisees that, that Jesus confronted in his parable in Luke 15. Prodigal son. Right? The older brother couldn't rejoice in his younger brother's salvation because his brother wasn't entitled to a calf and a party with his friends. He was entitled to it. Why should his brother get to rejoice? He was the one that worked hard. He was the one that was disciplined. He was the one that obeyed when his brother was out just having a good time. Wasting his father's money. He didn't indulge in pleasure. He was the one who had earned his father's love. Right? He couldn't rejoice in his brother's reconciliation because he believed he deserved his father's love. Because of how hard he worked. He didn't understand that what, what God's love is based upon. God shows his own love for us in this, and that what? While we were yet sinners. God's love has nothing, has, he is not impressed by anything in us. His love has nothing to do with us. It's, it just comes out of his free nature. He chooses to love us, though we are unlovely. But those who think they can earn God's love and acceptance through just hard work and discipline and austerity, they're typically characterized by jealousy and bitterness and anger and self-pity because they're not getting what they deserve. And there's a lot of other people who are getting things that they deserve. And they're anger. That should belong to me, not to them. I'm the good kid. And they can't enjoy another person's joy because they have no joys in themselves. And because they're rejecting the joy God gives them. Like God says, all everything I had was yours. You could have just asked for it and enjoyed it. But he couldn't because he took pride in his, what he was doing. He, he wouldn't accept the Father's joy because his, he didn't so much want joy, he wanted the Father's... He wanted to impress the Father. He wanted to... to to prove that he deserved his father's inheritance. There's nothing that fuels the self-righteous anger as seeing undeserving people rejoice. The, other, the only people who can rejoice when they see other people rejoicing, the only people who can rejoice in others' joy, are those who's, who's, who already have joy welling up within them. Who are already overflowing with joy. Because they found their joy in God. And so they can just rejoice as they, as they see other people taste the joy they have. They're like, yes, you've tasted and seen what I taste and see. Right? And that's we, when, we, when, we, when we enjoy something, when others do take enjoyment in that, that as well. And just biblically you see this with John the Baptist. Right? Remember... When his disciples came to, to John the Baptist, I think it was in John 3, and they said, people are following Jesus and getting baptized by him. And they're no longer following you. Remember how he responded? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I've been waiting for that, guys. I'm not in competition with this guy. I want people to find their joy in him. That's what I live for. He could rejoice because his joy was complete. Because he found other people finding joy in what brought him joy. And then he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so instead of rejoicing in the Gentiles' joy, these Gentiles, they just want to cut off. Sorry, the Jews, they want to cut off the Gentiles' joy. They don't want to see them rejoicing. And so they they contradict Paul and they slander him, saying that his interpretations are wrong. They, They accuse him of, Uh, They blaspheme him. That means they slander him. They accuse him of being a vile person. You can't trust this teacher. He must have some ill motives. This would be like a great baker giving away hundreds of delicious pies. And then a rich patron who used to spend all of his money on 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 those pies. Now he sees other people enjoying the pies that he spent hard-earned money to purchase for himself. And he sees other people getting to enjoy those pies for free. He then turns on that baker and he says, you can't, that, those pies must be poisoned. Because you can't trust somebody who's going to give away delicious pies. There's got to be some vile motive. Nobody does that. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Beware. So, he's, so these, these Jews are slandering Paul. They're undermining Paul. Because they're seeing other people enjoy the very things they found some Joy in themselves. They don't want others to share it. But the Gentiles do rejoice. We see that in verses 46 through 49. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas react to the contradictions and their reviling by boldly confronting these Jews and their sin. But it's noteworthy what sin they're confronting. They're not confronting them for their slander, their, their blasphemy, or their twisting of the word of God. The sin they confront is their repudiation of the word of God. The word repudiate means to, to shove aside, to, to blatantly disregard, as if somebody were to offer you a gift. And you were to take that gift and you were to, just, to, just to throw it in the trash. Just, that's what it means to repudiate. Just no respect to the giver or the gift. So the sin is not so much in dishonoring the apostles, but dishonoring God's word and therefore dishonoring God. And the reason they reject God's word is because it doesn't line up with their preconceived ideas. That's not the God I believe in. They're judging God, not letting God judge them. Now contrast the response of the Jews here to response of the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Like those who recognize that the word of God is the word of God, accept it. 
They receive it as a treasure. They love it. They delight in it. But because the Jews in Antioch, Pisidia, reject the offer of the gospel, the, the, the apostles now declare, declare they're going to turn their attention to the Gentiles. And they explain why. And notice the reason they give is actually found in the Old Testament scriptures. In Isaiah 49. And the scripture they quote is one of the three servant songs of Isaiah. And this is the second servant song. It says this in verse 6, 49.6. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant. This is speaking of the Messiah. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. What it's saying is the Messiah, what he's going to accomplish is so great, it's not going to be good enough just to save the Jews, even though the Messiah was the Jews' Messiah. His work of salvation is going to be so amazing, it's going to reach to the ends of the earth. Which shows us that God's plan was always to reach the nations. And that's why the, the apostles have confidence that when the Jews reject the gospel here, but they're just going to move on to the other nations because that's what they're commanded to do. And it's actually they're commanded in the Old Testament scriptures that these Jews claim to revere. And we got to see that these Jews claim to revere the word of God. We are the true believers, but they only have a view that they have created. They've taken the word of God and created their own religion based upon their own preconceived notions that exalts them over against everybody else. But they're not truly submitting themselves to what the Word of God actually says. Or they would realize from Isaiah 49 that the gospel was always intended to go to the Gentiles. And they would be rejoicing. Even as the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, were rejoicing. Former Jews who have tasted the grace of God. And have now come through great danger to proclaim it to any who would hear. And this causes the Gentiles to rejoice when they hear this word. It says they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Because the word had now become their treasure. Like a treasure hidden in a field. This person sells all they have to go and buy. They didn't see the scriptures as a boring list of rules and regulations, requirements for how to live an austere life. No, they saw it as life. This is life. It's the word of life. I need this and, I, and I love it. As Psalm 19 says, God's commands are. They're to be more desired than gold. Let me just let that sink in for a second. Somebody were to offer you a Bible... Or the weight of this Bible in gold, what are you going to pick? Well, let's be honest. I mean, I mean that. Because there's a lot of people, they can get up early in the morning go to work. They can work 80-hour weeks. Because they want that money. They want that, that employee of the week or whatever. But man, it's so hard to get in the Bible. So much labor to open a Bible and read some promises. They can get up every day and go work out. But they can't open a Bible. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold, sweeter than honey, than drippings of the honeycomb. That's sweet. If you've ever had honey from a honeycomb, that's sweet, sweet, sweet. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. This is how you think of the Word of God. Is it your treasure? Is it your life? And again, this is what the Word of God says. I'm not coming up with this stuff. This is, this is how the Word of God says you should respond to the Word of God. Not just your pastors and elders. Are you here this morning simply because you know it's the right thing to do or because your, your spouse asked you to come? Or are you here because you just couldn't wait to hear the Word of God explained because it is your necessary food? Right, when, it, when it came time to listen to the sermon where you're like, ooh, no more singing. I've got to wait another hour. Or was it like, yeah. Is Bible reading your daily bread or your daily chore? I don't ask this to, to pour out some shameful guilt on you guys. But simply to point out that if you find the Bible boring and dull, you're probably blind to its true glory. Right? If you were to go to Stacey Schau and have your eyes checked, and she asks you to read the letters on the wall. And she's like, I don't see any letters. I just see a bunch of just blurry splotches. And she says, well, you need glasses, because you're nearly blind. And when she says that, she's not being cruel, and you know it. She's just telling you the truth, and then offering you a solution to correct your blindness. If you don't hunger and rejoice in the Word of God, you probably have never had your heart transformed. Like, that's the problem. You, and you, the, what you need is you need God to transform your heart. You need to cry out to Him, God, open my eyes that I might see. I want, I, I believe you're real. I believe the Bible's the Word of God. Open my eyes to treasure it as the Word of God. That I would want to obey it. That it, I really would crave it and find it sweeter than honey. I want that. Because even brand new believers we see rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord as we see here in Acts. Right? When the Gentiles heard this, it's the first time they've heard it. When they hear this, they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now now note, the ones who rejoiced and glorified Rejoice in the word were those whom God had appointed to eternal life. Right? The point is that the only reason they responded this way is because God had appointed them to respond this way. God had chosen to open their eyes. He had caused a miracle to take place in their heart. They once were blind, but now they see. The only time, the only way a, a blind person can then see is if a miracle takes place. And I'm talking about true blindness, not partial blindness. A miracle has to happen. And because the Gentiles now saw the word of God for what it was, it says that it began to spread through the whole region. Right? And the, the biblical principle here is that when people see the truth, when they, when they see it with, with spiritual eyes, they see it for what it is, they want to share it. This is a, a biblical principle. When people see 
the truth for what it is. They want to share it. It's not a burden. It's not a chore. You don't have to like grab it out of their throat. Like they're looking for opportunities wherever they can find it to talk about what they love. Right? It's the same in anything in life. When a person enjoys something, they want to share their joy, whether it's a piece of music that they hear or, or they, they saw their, their favorite team win a, win a game and they want to just recount everything that happened because they enjoyed it so much. We want to tell others about the things we enjoy so they can enjoy it too. And brothers and sisters, that's all evangelism is. Like we've created evangelism into something that's scary. But it's because we misunderstand it. So it doesn't take any doesn't take courage to talk about the meal you just enjoyed. <laughs> I could go tell you any I had a great breakfast, by the way. And I have no it's not gonna take any courage for me. And you would not be impressed by me if I said, Let me tell you about breakfast. You'd be like, Man, that guy's courageous. And it's the same thing with the Word of God. Right? I had French toast. Somebody might not like French toast. Somebody might like that. Just too eggy. Okay. Somebody might not like Christ. That's okay. But I'm going to tell them about it. Because I love Christ. That's all evangelism is, brothers and sisters. Just go and talk to people about what you love. If you want to be good evangelists, you don't need to take a class. You don't need to learn special techniques or strategies. You don't have to drum up boldness. You just simply need to open your Bible and fall in love with what you read. And if you don't love it, just stay there and love it. All right? Talk about it. Tell others what you've come to love. And you're, in, in doing so, your, your listeners aren't going to think, wow, you've come to just do your Christian duty. They're going to they're gonna see that, that, that you have sincerity, a real longing for their joy. You're trying to share your joy so that they can have joy. But if you offer somebody something to eat and it doesn't look like you enjoy it, they're going to be like, I don't know. But when, you, when, you, when you're eating something, you're like, man, this is good. You've got to try this. They're going to be like, give me some. Right? But you've got to enjoy it first. Right, I'm. I'm not going to pitch to you spinach. <laughs> I think this stuff is nasty. Right? You could disagree. That's okay. But I'll, I'll tell you about French toast, though. <laughs> right? I'm not going to pitch to you Buddha, but man, I'll tell you. I'll tell you about Jesus Christ. My point is that what we see here in Acts 13 is good news easily spreads when those who hear it think it's really good. But that's the issue, guys. It's easy to spread when those who when those who are spreading it already think it's good. Do you think the good is the gospel good to you? This brings us to the Jews' persecution. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. While the Gentiles rejoice in the word, the Jews become enraged by it to the extent that they persecute them in order to shut them up. And I say that this is violent persecution. 
And I say that because in 2 Timothy 3.11, Paul mentions that he faced persecutions and sufferings in Antioch. And in 2 Corinthians 11.25, he mentions that three times he was beaten by rods. And that word for rods, is, it refers to the rods that lictors had. Lictors were like kind of the, the police officers, so to speak. They executed the judgment of the magistrates. And they had these rods they would beat people with. Paul says three times he was beaten by rods. And we're not told when Paul was scourged three times. We know once he was in Philippi, but we're not told about the other times. But the evidence suggests that it was here in Pisidian Antioch. By these devout women and men in the city that the Jews stirred up. Paul was likely beaten. Probably was beaten. Almost certainly was beaten here. For the gospel. But being unable to convince the crowds to reject the word, by their contradictions and slander, the Jews, they turn to manipulative tactics. They get political and violent. And so the apostles choose to depart, bring their message elsewhere. But on the way out, they shake the dust off their feet, it says. And this is just in accordance with Jesus' instructions to his disciples in Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 6. Verse 11, it says, any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is a testimony not against the Gentiles, because they wouldn't get it. This is a testimony against the Jews. Because it's based in this idea the Jews had of when they traveled through Gentile territory, they became unclean. Even the dust made them unclean. And so they had to shake the dust off their feet before they'd walk back into Jewish territory. If a spot of heathen dust that had touched an offering, it must at once be burnt. And if by chance a, a heathen dust had been brought into the land, it would make the land unclean. And so, when the disciples in, the, in, in Mark 6 and, and, the, and the apostles here, they shake the dust off their feet, it's, it's a testimony against the Israelites, basically saying, you are no better than pagan Gentiles. Because you repudiate the word of God. You, you pride yourself in the law of Moses. And you're worse than pagan Gentiles. There could be people here that pride themselves on, on keeping all sorts of biblical commands. But the reality is, God considers you no better than the Satan worshiper down the street. And you'll hear on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all these good things? And Jesus will look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. The, the, the Jews are angry. They get enraged that such... such Vile people could be offered forgiveness. But the, the Gentiles, they rejoice. Right, we see this in verse 52. The disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Right, so the disciples here would probably include both Jewish believers as well as Gentile believers. But notice they're rejoicing. And this is right after Paul and Barnabas have left. They just lost their pastor. But they continue to rejoice. 
They, the, they, the, the city around them hates them to the extent that their leaders are beaten. But they're not quivering in fear. They're not wallowing in self-pity. Oh, look at us. Continually rejoicing. And walking in the Spirit. So where does such joy come from? In the midst of such difficulty. Well, it's it's a fruit of the heart of one who truly believes. Joy is the natural fruit of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you. It's natural for you to rejoice. I, I get this from Romans 5. If you turn in your Bibles there. And you see it for yourself. Pastor Joseph's not just making this up. Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, right? We, we become believers. We be made, made righteous by faith, not by our works. So he's referring to believers here. Because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now notice this. And not only this. But we exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance proving character. And proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Right? True believers, those who are justified by faith, rejoice in suffering. Why? Because the suffering shows they're real. They don't lose heart. It just, it draws, the suffering dry, drives them to Christ because the Holy Spirit is saying, you don't need comfort, you just need Jesus. And they're like, all I need is Christ. And suffering just removes the vanity of all the things in the world, and they realize all they need is Christ, and they just rejoice because they don't need anything else. They take joy in knowing they don't need anything else. Because the Holy Spirit shows them that, because the Holy Spirit's within them. He's opened their eyes to these truths. But those who trust in themselves, when things don't go their way, when they lose, when they fail... They get self-pitiful and depressed because suffering drives them back to themselves. Their hope isn't in God, it's in themselves. It's a cycle of they just can't, they can't stop but being depressed because their hope is in themselves. Suffering shows where our faith really lies. And so it's, it's, it's worth asking. How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond when things don't go your way? How do you respond to the word? Do you treasure it more than your necessary food? Is it more to be desired than gold? Yeah, even fine gold. Do you rejoice when you see the joy of others? Or just when good things happen to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't want to hear in surprise when we, when we stand before you in judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. And so, Father, if there's anybody here 
that doesn't know you, I pray that you'd help them to see it very clearly. And Lord, if there's even true believers, but, but we've gotten caught up in, in, a, in a self-centered, self-righteous mindset, performance-based religion, you'd help them to see that they, they don't need any of that. They just need to receive the love that you offer for them in Christ. That they might have their joy made full. Right, as Jesus, as you said, that their, my joy might be in them and their joy might be made full. God, I thank you that you are a God who doesn't want us to be miserable. But that even in suffering, you, can, you cause us to rejoice. And so, Father, we want to be a joyful people. Who rejoice in the midst of adversity, not because the adversity is good. We're pleasant or exalting, but because we know a good God has appointed it. And it proves the reality of our faith. And pray these things in Christ's name.